Welcome to Bladder Buzz, the podcast where doctors, researchers, and consumers discuss bladder health and function for those with neurogenic bladder. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Mandy Rounds and Dr. Christina Sadowski to discuss bone health after spinal cord injury. And now, Bladder Buzz. I'm Dr. Mandy Rounds, a researcher at MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital and MedStar Health Research Institute in Washington, D.C. My work focuses on improving the quality of life of those that have had neurologic injuries and diseases such as spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, stroke, and spina bifida. Joining me today is Dr. Sadowski, an associate professor in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the clinical director of the International Center for Spinal Cord Injury at Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore. Thanks for being here today. Well, thank you, Dr. Rounds. I am so glad to be able to chat about this important topic that frequently gets overlooked because bone loss is a silent process and only surfaces when a fracture occurs. The annual incidence of low-impact fractures in individuals with spinal cord disease-related paralysis is reported to be 2 to 7%. While lifelong, one-third to half of individuals with paralysis from spinal cord will likely suffer a fracture below the level of their injury. So I'm glad to shed some light. Yeah, I think this is such an important topic to discuss. But tell me a little bit, how is abnormal bone mineral density diagnosed after a spinal cord injury? So we'll start with some background. Individuals with spinal cord injury are at high risk for developing what we call secondary osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is a skeletal disorder characterized by this compromise uh, in bone strength, which predisposes a person to an increased risk of fracture. The diagnosis can be done either clinically, that if a low impact fracture happens, meaning a fracture that happens out of the blue, as a result of a minimal trauma, or better, osteoporosis can be diagnosed through imaging using DEXA or bone densitometry, dual absorption bone densitometry. Bone loss after spinal cord injury can have multiple causes. The loss of weight bearing related to the paralysis The fact that the bone, like any other organ, is innervated and the paralysis leads to denervation of this important tissue. Loss of other factors that support bone formation and deposition, like growth hormone, testosterone, and endocrine factors. Presence of some factors that favor bone loss, like the systemic inflammation that occurs when you have recurring urinary tract infections or administration of drugs like steroids at the time of injury, antidepressants and anticonvulsants that are used for treatment of neuropathic pain, uh, opioids that are used for treatment of pain, proton pump inhibitors that are used for heartburn and stomach discomfort and are over available over the counter and some of the blood thinners. So another important thing to know is that bone loss is dependent, dependent on the time and extent of neurologic injury. The 
most of the bone loss occurs in that first year, but continues for decades after. The higher the injury, the more likely that the bone tissue below the injury level is going to uh, suffer bone loss. And then another point of importance is that fractures in people with spinal cord injury most commonly occur in the distal femur and proximal tibia, and it's called paraplegic fracture, a term that has been coined by Dr. Ragnarsson. So there's a lot going on and a lot of factors, it sounds like. So yes. for your patients, are there any particular signs that you tell them to look for when it comes to these possible bone fractures that they can experience? Well, to tell you the truth, these fractures can occur just during stretching, of course, during bumping uh, of the knee when going over, over a threshold or so forth. So it's important to be keenly aware that that can occur. Look for or listen for a pop. Look for swelling or deformity. The swelling can occur several hours to days after the onset. So whenever you see that there's something different, especially around the knee and the bones around the knee, just make sure that you go and see your spinal cord injury medicine specialist. Perfect. I think that's really helpful to know what particular parts of the body to really be cognizant of and, you know, the sounds the sounds that you talked about as well. So what are some strategies that you use with your patients to improve bone health in people with spinal cord injury? Oh, we have pharmacologic treatments that can be used, and then we have some physical modalities. Ambulation, standing, and electrical stimulation may be helpful at increasing bone mineral density in individuals with spinal cord injury, but do not necessarily correlate with fracture risk reduction. And in, have, in fact, I have to say, we do not have any intervention that we know that it correlates with fracture risk reduction in individuals with spinal cord injury. This is as a consequence of the fact that while it is a devastating injury, it is still a rare injury. So we do not have those prospective studies in which we can say, like in the um, postmenopausal osteoporosis, where we have millions of women that we can study prospectively, give them drugs, have them do specific interventions and say, hey, this leads to reduced risk of fracture. We don't have that in spinal cord injury. But if the low bone mass is diagnosed by DEXA, so before the fracture, I usually consider optimizing metabolic parameters like calcium and vitamin D, supplementation and replacement. We know that individuals with spinal cord are, have low vitamin D level, and but we don't know that vitamin D supplementation reduces the fracture incidence. But having a normal level of vitamin D is helpful for different other reasons like cardiovascular health and pain control. 
So eating those vitamin D rich foods and spending 15 to 20 minutes uh, daily in the sun, plus maybe taking some supplements if you really don't want the sun, is a good idea. When I'm thinking about drugs, pharmacologic intervention related to spinal cord injury, there are bisphosphonates like Fosamax and zolendronic acid. And this anti-wrinkle monoclonal antibody named uh, denosumab that have been shown to be helpful in individuals with spinal cord injury-related paralysis. Another drug, teriparatide, which increases bone deposition, may have positive effect on increasing bone density of the spine, hip, and knee in people with paralysis. But again, like before, no studies have been done looking at the incidence of fracture. And other physical modalities, I did mention about standing, ambulation, weights, loading, functional electrical stimulation, and pulsed electromagnetic fields and low-intensity ultrasound have all been found in small studies to prevent bone loss or improve bone uh, density. Importantly, there is this 2019 International Society of Clinical Densitometry position that has been published with the help of spinal cord injury medicine specialists, and it specifies that there is no established threshold bone mineral density value below which weight-bearing activities are absolutely contraindicated. And I want to underline this. A lot of us healthcare professionals are wary of asking patients to go stand or do walking activities in a partial supported or a full supported environment because we think that their bone density is low and they're going to break their bones. There is no BMD, bone mineral density value, below which weight-bearing activities are absolutely contraindicated. And there is no correlation between exercise modalities and increased fracture rate. So go ahead and exercise and load those bones. So what would you tell our listeners are the take-home points when it comes to bone health? I think I think you had a nice little exit of a take-home point, but are there any other take-home points that you haven't haven't discussed already? Well, um, so I'm going to make a quick plug for a resource that is available for free to healthcare professionals and any other individual that's interested. It is uh, a resource generated by the American Spinal Injury Association, the primary care provider committee. And there is this playad of informational papers, one of them being maintaining the health of individuals, uh, the bone health of individuals with spinal cord injury. And there are take-home points there. So I'm going to read those. And there is anything else that you want me to add, I'm more than happy to. But Number one, most bone loss occurs in the first year following neurologic injury and continues for decades after. 
Spinal cord injury related fractures occur most commonly around the knee. All adults with spinal cord injury resulting in permanent motor or sensory dysfunction should have a dual energy X-ray absorptiometry scan, a DEXA scan for short. That scan should be done at the to- of the total hip, proximal tibia, and distal femur, in addition to the spine, the lumbar spine. And it should be done as soon as medically stable in order to diagnose osteoporosis and predict lower extremity fracture risk. Clinician caring for individuals with paralysis must maintain a high index of suspicion for fractures because there is lack of function, a sensory function, and people won't have pain. Referral to an orthopedic surgeon for surgical stabilization should be part of clinical practice. A lot of us think that, well, you're not going to ever walk. What's the idea about having surgery? Well, I am a restorative uh, function physician. I'm going to say, and I'm practicing optimist, I'm going to say everybody has the ability to walk. So stabilizing the fracture, having an internal reduction surgery is important. It's also important because all these deformities in the lower limbs lead to seating abnormalities because of pelvic inequality, because it leads to compromised venous and arterial uh, circulation with swelling. So we don't need to add other things to the comorbidities related to spinal cord injury. If you have a fracture, you should see an orthopedic surgeon to decide and be an advocate to decide if that fracture will be a surgical intervention requiring fracture fracture for an individual with without paralysis. So just ask that question. And... The last one is treatment of low bone mass and osteoporosis should be done by somebody that's knowledgeable in paralysis and bone loss. Not every endocrinologist or primary care physician will know how to treat this. So be an advocate and go and look for the best person for the job. That's beautifully said. I think being an advocate is such a huge, important part, especially after having a spinal cord injury. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know our listeners learned a lot about bone health following a spinal cord injury. And for our listeners out there, please check out the links that Dr. Sadowski talked about in our podcast write-up. Thanks again. Thank you. Bladder Buzz is presented by the Rehabilitation Research and Training Center on Neurogenic Lower Urinary Tract Dysfunction. The information presented in this podcast does not express the views of the individual's employer or affiliated institutions. The content is for informational and reference purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, or as the sole source of guidance for decision-making. We advise you to always consult with a physician before making any healthcare decisions or for guidance about a specific medical condition. Thanks for listening. 
Come back soon.